The readings are in two parts. First part is 1 Peter 5, verse 12, and the second part, 1 Peter 13, verse 2-3. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you've had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know what it is, what it was not. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect, who is chosen before creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all the malice, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted the love of God, tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. We thank you for this uh, wonderful letter that Peter wrote. We thank you that it is uh, a letter that reveals the true grace of God, what the gospel is. Help us in this Eastertide to uh, rejoice again in that gospel, to, to revel in it really, to delight in it, and have it written on our hearts and our minds for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, what I'm about to say, I assure you, is not a party political point. I want to make that absolutely clear as we're in the middle of an election. But the fact is that in a recent article, our Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, wrote this about Easter. He said, Easter is all about remembering the importance of change, responsibility, and doing the right thing for the good of our children. <laughs> uh, in so doing, he seems to have redefined the heart of Easter uh, as the spectators Isabel Hardman pointed out, 
uh, Christian Concern for the Nation shared this in their blog this week. Uh, they quoted Isabel Hardman, the heart of the Christian message, Prime Minister, is generally considered to be, quote, a man called the Son of God, dying in agony on a cross, and then rising from the dead, saying he was taking a punishment that men deserved. Not much to do with change responsibility and doing the right thing for the good of our children, good though that might be. For the next three weeks in the evening, I want us to look at Peter's take on these things. In one of the most helpful verses of the New Testament for me, because it explains why a letter has been written, I'm just going to move that. Is that making a funny noise, Martin? I'm going to move it away from my face a little bit. Is that a little, that's a little bit better, I think. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, which Kevin read right at the start of the reading, he uh, explains why he's written his letter. He's written, he says, with Silas's help, which is why the Greek is so sophisticated for a Galilean fisherman, in order to testify, to bear witness to the true grace of God and to encourage the scattered little groups of believers to whom the letter is addressed to stand fast. I've written to testify to what the true grace of God is and to encourage you to stand fast in it. And it's no surprise that the letter identifies the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as the focus of the true grace of God and it recognizes the reality of the spiritual attack from the devil and the challenge to resist that attack as the key to standing firm. That is the heart of Christianity, Prime Minister, and not change, responsibility, and doing the right thing for the good of our children. And tonight we're looking at the cross, and we'll come to the resurrection uh, next week and the challenge to stand fast in two weeks' time. Peter's life, Peter is a favorite Bible character of mine, as many of you know, and his life can be summed up in a few verbs. He fished. Uh, he was probably very good at it. He was called by Jesus on the beach, come follow me. He denied Jesus, I do not know the man you're talking about, he said to the servant girl. He observed the cross and the death of Jesus. He witnessed the resurrection. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He was filled with the Spirit and he obeyed Jesus' command. He fished, he was called, he denied, he observed, he witnessed, he commissioned, he was filled, and he obeyed. But his life was changed, the whole direction of his life was changed by his presence at two extraordinary events, unique events, the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So let's look first at Peter and his experience of the cross. He must have been so disappointed in himself as he fled from the place where he had three times denied that he knew Jesus. He wept bitterly, the gospel writers tell us. He was so disappointed that he had let Jesus down. Perhaps we can all relate to that. This was the key moment in Jesus' life. 
This was the moment when he needed his friends more than anything else, and Peter denied him. I guess that there are moments when we all can relate uh, to that only too well. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 18, he reflects on that uh, and says uh, that his life without Christ was empty and purposeless. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. Uh, I think a lot of people feel, perhaps as they grow older, that there is a certain emptiness, a certain sense of disappointment uh, in life. They, uh, Peter must have had a, an extraordinarily poignant experience of that disappointment. Things have not quite worked out as he wanted to. It's a sense of disappointment. I thought things would go differently to this and he did, uh, when he denied Christ. And he, d- he describes some of the characteristics of uh, this life, this empty life, at the start of chapter 2, when he says, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Under pressure, uh, when we are in extremists, these are the things often that emerge in our character. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We are disappointing and disappointed. I know it's all the craze at the moment to, uh, to criticize politicians, and I don't want to join that hullabaloo. But sadly, it is the case that those things, uh, deceit, slander, hypocrisy, envy, these are things that are often man- manifested in an election campaign. They are not entirely absent from what's going on at the moment. Although, as I said last week, uh, most um, politicians are to be admired, especially are the leaders who carry such a huge responsibility. We should pray for them and not think that they are all uh, cynically bad. Nevertheless, in extremists, some of these characteristics are revealed. We must be careful not to over-concentrate on the speck in their eyes and ignore the beam in our own, of course. The truth is that we are all a bit disappointing, and Peter came to the cross as a disappointed man. But the cross for him was a new start, and it is for us too. And here are three thoughts about the cross from this passage. Firstly, at the cross, Peter and us are redeemed from purposelessness. We are redeemed from purposelessness. The idea of redemption is a very rich one in Scripture. And Peter had in mind almost certainly the... uh, process by which a slave in the first century was set free. A slave was redeemed when someone paid money to buy his or her freedom. And Peter understood that mankind, and perhaps he understood it very powerfully himself because of his experience at the trial of Jesus, he knew that mankind is enslaved to sin. And people try in all sorts of ways to break free from the grip of sin good works, religion, education, science, philosophy, and so on. And these ways, of course, are not hopeless. It would be quite wrong to think they were. Human beings who are not Christians are capable of doing good things. It would be foolish to think otherwise. There is a, a theory that some have that all altruism is ultimately selfish. But I, I'm not sure that I buy that because we see 
great self-sacrifice, and we see great courage from people who are not necessarily Christians. People are capable of doing good, and Christians, of course, are capable of doing bad. Nevertheless, even the best efforts of all of us are flawed. We are flawed. In the 60s, uh, long before many of you were around, in the 60s, the great evangelist Billy Graham uh, appeared on a TV program called The Rowan and Martin Laughing. Some of you who are old as me will remember The Rowan and Martin Laughing. It was quite an amusing program. And they tried to send up a kind of guest every program, and they got Billy Graham on. And they said, now, Dr. Graham, tell us what is wrong with the world. And no doubt they hoped for a long, wordy answer, you know, a bit like this sermon. But all Billy said was, sin. What is wrong with the world, Dr. Graham? Sin. It actually was not the funniest moment in the whole of the Laugh-In programs, in the whole series, to be honest. It didn't really work for Rowan and Martin. But he was right. And the grace of God is revealed in the substitutionary death on the cross of Christ. His body and his blood are the ransom price for our freedom from sin. Here, Christ's love, his grace, is most powerfully revealed. Peter spells it out uh, really clearly in chapter 2 and verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter had come to see that there was nothing that he could do to escape the consequences of sin. He could try to be good, he could try to be better, he could try to keep the law, and he could make some progress in it, as human beings can. But he knew that he was flawed, and he watched Jesus die, and he knew that he was dying in his place as his substitute on the cross. As he watched Jesus die, at a distance, no doubt, and as he thought about it later and studied Scripture, particularly Isaiah 53, which is in his mind in chapter 2, he came to see that Jesus paid a ransom price that he could never pay. And so it's true uh, that we contribute nothing to our redemption from sin save our sin itself. It is all the grace of God. So when Peter writes in in chapter 5 and verse 12 that he's testifying to the true grace of God, he is bearing witness to an event that he witnessed and which he had come to understand as being the only way in which he could be redeemed from sin and the terrible consequences of sin. Only the cross, only the cross is sufficient price paid. So at the cross we are redeemed At the cross, we are also, according to Peter, purified, purified from sin. God's love and forgiveness free us to take our eyes off our own needs and concentrate on others. Sin is essentially an absorption with self, putting ourselves on the throne of our our lives rather than God, self-worship. 
And this need to put ourselves at the center of everything pollutes us and leads to all sorts of problems. Anyone, and there are many people for whom in our church family for whom this is true, anyone who struggled with depression, for instance, will know how hard it is to think of anything but one's own plight. That's true. And in the case of depression, of course, it's not the person's fault. Absolutely not. It's not the person's fault at all. Depression is an illness that can be treated in various ways. But it is an extreme example of the plight of the human condition. At our most vulnerable, we reveal our true situation and absorption with self. And the cross both challenges us and enables us to bask, so to speak, in the love of God. To know that we are loved, warts and all. Loved by Jesus all the way to the cross. So dramatic is the experience of Christian conversion at the cross that Peter picks up the language of Jesus himself here in this passage. He says we are born again. Born again. An entirely new way of life is opened up for the believer who was brought in by faith to the truth of the cross. You can never be the same again once you have really come to the cross in repentance and faith. See, at the cross we are redeemed from the penalty of sin. We are redeemed from the penalty of sin, death. Death, death has been, Jesus has substituted himself in our place. We cannot die eternally because Jesus has paid that price for us. We are redeemed from the penalty of sin, death, and we are declared clean and forgiven to live a new kind of life with God and others as a higher priority than ourselves. The golden rule becomes for us something that we can actually do. We can love God and love our neighbors as ourselves because we have been purified from sin. When we sin, when we act impurely, we are not being true to ourselves as born-again Christians. We are denying what we have been declared to be at the cross of Christ, redeemed and purified. To be pure, to act purely, to love God and love our neighbors is to be true to ourselves as Christians, for we have been purified by the cross of Christ. And finally at the cross, we are commissioned to holiness. We are commissioned to holiness. I just want to read uh, a little bit again from the passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good." We are commissioned to a new kind of life, holiness. Peter had this remarkable experience on the shore of Lake Tiberias. I was preaching about it at St. Clement's this morning when uh, Jesus comes to him and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He's commissioned to a new task. I mentioned from this pulpit before that not once during my whole selection process uh, for ordination in the Church of England did anyone ask me if I loved Jesus. I don't recall ever being asked that. You know, are you familiar with the different traditions within the Church of England? They was asked that. 
Nowadays, I'd be asked if I'd be prepared to work under a woman bishop. I would be certainly asked that. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If you love me, feed my sheep. For Peter and for us, the Christian life is a tremendous challenge. It is for me. But he had come to see that the cross changed everything. Next week, we'll see that resurrection joy was his daily experience. He lived in resurrection joy, even amidst suffering, eventual martyrdom. But he also knew that living the forgiven life, living the purified life, required some effort on his part. He was the newborn baby who now had to grow up. And it was for him, as it was for us, a daily struggle to rid ourselves of, de- of deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These things are the enemy crouching at the door of our lives. Peter had been at uh, the Christian life a long time by the time he sat down with Silas and wrote this letter. And I think we should be encouraged by the amazing change that has taken place in him from the man who denied Jesus uh, just before the cross to this hero of Christian faith. So we too can know victory over sin as we follow Jesus in the power of His Spirit. I remember when I was becoming a Christian back in 1969, having long conversations with David Shepherd, who was then the warden of the Mayflower Family Centre in the East End of London and went on to become the Bishop of Liverpool, very famous Bishop of Liverpool. And I was being convicted of sin because I always thought that I was a reasonably decent sort of chap, you know, who would be a privilege for God to have in his team. You know, that's what I thought as a teenager. And it had come as a great shock to me to discover that I was a sinner and my self-righteousness was a sin. And I remember saying to David, is my whole life going to be a life of getting to the every day and feeling myself to be a totally miserable sinner? And I remember David looking at me and saying, you know, he says, sometimes he says, I can get to the end of the day and I'm saying my prayers and I think to the Lord, thank you, Lord, I really haven't sinned today. I don't think I've sinned today. I thought, God, can he really say that? That's amazing. And I thought, now, now, I'm not sure that I can ever quite say that, but I thought that's really encouraging to think that just possibly we can have some victory over sin. It isn't necessarily always going to be an appalling list of defeats and disasters. The implication of having the cross at the center of our lives is spelt out here. There can be great change. Peter says, you are a chosen people now. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now because of the cross, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, he says, but now because of the cross, you have received mercy. There is grace enough for each of us to make good and right decisions day by day. I must conclude. This week, um, one of the things that I enjoy uh, reading week by week are the blogs that Tom Houston a member of our church family, a distinguished minister for many years, a pastor of the Nairobi Baptist Church, uh, 
great man, as many of you know, wonderful man. Tom writes a blog which he calls Fly on the Wall when he reflects on a number of issues uh, through his Christian walk and he has a wonderfully agile contemporary mind to reflect on what God is doing in the world today. And he reflects in this week's blog on the terrible slaughter in Kenya of the Christian students. And it leads Tom to think and write about all those Christians for whom we've been praying uh, throughout Lent, those who are suffering persecution around the world right now. And in his blog, he concludes by quoting a favorite old hymn, which will be familiar to some of you here. I quote Tom's blog. He says this, For years I have sung, My sins, O the bliss of this glorious thought, My sins, not in part, but the whole, Are nailed to his cross, And I bear them no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. This Easter, writes Tom, As I have thought about the cloud of witnesses, Living and dead, and their persecutors, I have begun to change the pronouns to the third person. His, her, their sins. Oh, the bless of this glorious thought. His, her, their sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to his cross. They need bear them no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let me change it once more as I close. Your sins... Oh the, bless, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to his cross. You need bear them no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul. Amen.